Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a weekly program bringing you news and opinion pieces from a variety of sources. This one's being recorded on the 4th of August for the listening week that begins the 5th. And your reader's name is Susan Shirey. Opening with pieces from theroot.com. Most current ones that they have posted. This first written by Jessica Washington. It was published on the 4th. Killing affirmative action wasn't enough. Now conservatives are coming for black women entrepreneurs. The right-wing activist behind SCOTUS's affirmative action decision is now attacking a venture capital fund that supports black women-owned small businesses. Clearly making it harder for black and Latino kids to get into college wasn't far enough for the man behind the Supreme Court's affirmative action decision. Now he's coming after black women with small businesses. On Wednesday, the nonprofit American Alliance for Equal Rights filed a lawsuit against an Atlanta-based venture capital fund that supports black women and other minority-owned small businesses. The nonprofit was founded by none other than right-wing crusader Edward Bloom, who has made it his mission to destroy affirmative action. The lawsuit fought Pardon me. The lawsuit filed against the Fearless Fund alleges that a that pardon me that the fund is quote operating a racially discriminatory program in violation of the Civil Rights Act. The Fearless Fund was founded by three black women: executive Ayana Parsons, actress Kashia Knight Pulliam, and entrepreneur Arian Simone. As their website notes, less than 2.2% of all venture capital funding goes toward black-founded businesses, and less than 1% of total funding goes toward businesses founded by women of color. And yet, for some reason, folks like Bloom are convinced this number should be even lower. It's worth noting that Bloom and his team are clearly riding high from Supreme Court's affirmative action decision. In fact, they cite it at the top of their lawsuit. Even before this lawsuit, conservatives were looking for ways to weaponize the Supreme Court's decision in the workplace. In July, 13, oh, pardon me, in July, 13 Republican attorneys general wrote a letter demanding that Fortune 100 companies stop their affirmative action programs. The Root spoke to legal experts who said that as it stands, nothing in the Supreme Court's decision makes affirmative action within the workplace illegal. Here's that quote. Amalia Smyrniotopoulos, NAACP Legal Defense Fund Senior Policy Counsel, says that these Republican attorneys general are trying to make the Supreme Court's affirmative decision about something it's not. This was another attempt to chill completely lawful efforts to increase diversity, equity, and inclusion by corporations. Corporations, pardon me, says... Smyrniotopoulos, by really trying to stretch the meaning of the decision in the Harvard and UNC cases, and frankly, by also restating things that have always been true about discrimination, law, and employment. 
However, they agreed that this didn't make these arguments any less of a threat to diversity efforts in the office. Continuing with that quote, this letter is a scare tactic, says University of New Mexico constitutional and employment law professor Vinay Harpalani, and unfortunately, it's a pretty good one. Although the Supreme Court decision didn't touch on hiring practices, Harpalani says that conservatives will certainly try to use it as a basis for challenging race in employment. Harpalani says the law, as it is now, allows affirmative action in employment, but if the case went to the U.S. Supreme Court, I'm not at all confident that they would continue to allow it. The immediate threat is that companies begin to back away from DEI programs, said Justin Hansford, executive director of the Third Grid Marshall Civil Rights Center at Howard University. Hansford says some of these companies really weren't doing that much anyway, and what they were doing was done under, oh, pardon me, was done only under pressure. This could be an excuse for some companies that already didn't want to push the envelope on diversity to start walking things back. As for the lawsuit against Fearless Fund, an obvious concern is that it could scare off investors who might otherwise want to similarly invest in women of color. However, it's still too soon to say especially in this climate, whether the case has legs. Next article published on the 2nd, written by Candace McDuffie. What to know about the black woman presiding over Trump's latest criminal case? Judge Tanya Chutkin is an Obama appointee, and she don't play. A black woman, pardon me. Uh, I think that's a misspelling. We have a black woman, federal judge Tanya Chutkin, will preside over the election fraud case against former President Donald Trump. Chutkin, an Obama appointee, has earned a reputation for doling out severe punishments for January 6th rioters who stormed the U.S. Capitol. During a December 2021 sentencing, Chutkin told January 6th rioter Robert Palmer, the issue of who has or has not been charged is not before me. I don't have any influence on that. I have my opinions, but they are not relevant. I have to make it clear that the actions you engaged in cannot happen again. Every day we're hearing about reports of anti-democratic factions of people plotting violence, the potential threat of violence, in 2024. In addition... Chutkin has previously ruled against Trump in a different January 6th case. Back in November 2021, she denied his request to prevent the release of documents to the U.S. House's January 6th committee by establishing executive privilege. Chutkin threw out his arguments that he could hold privilege over documents from his administration, even though President Joe Biden allowed the National Archives to distribute the papers. She explained that Trump had no right to insist that his privilege, quote, exists in perpetuity. She also gave a fiery retort when she stated, Presidents are not kings, and plaintiff is not president. Chutkin had sentenced a minimum of 38 people convicted of crimes related to the Capitol riot. Their sentences ranged from 10 days to 5 years. In addition, Chutkin is just one of 24 judges in Washington, D.C., who have sentenced about 600 defendants for their actions on January 6th. Chutkin, 61, hails from Kingston, Jamaica. 
She came to the States for college as a teen, graduating from George Washington University and then attending law school at the University of Pennsylvania. For more than a decade, Chutkin worked as a public defender in Washington, D.C. Before becoming a federal trial judge in Washington in 2014, she worked for the law firm Boys, Schiller, and Flexner. Next one also published on the 2nd and written by Candace McDuffie. How the charges against Trump are linked to a century-old fight against the Klan. The former president has been charged under a criminal statute from the Reconstruction era. Donald Trump is not only the first former president to have been charged with a federal crime stemming from his actions in office, he could also be the first one in history to be held accountable for attempting to victimize black people. The crimes alleged in the 45-page indictment against the ex-president handed down yesterday don't specifically mention race. They are a roadmap for Trump and his allies' plans to flip the vote in states where black voters were key to the outcome of the 2020 presidential election. It was in Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and elsewhere black voters held sway, where Trump focused his efforts, not only perpetuating the lie that he'd actually won, engaged in an alleged conspiracy to defraud these same voters, pardon me, that's those same voters whose prosecutors say rose to the level of criminal culpability, and almost as if in a nod to the underlying racial implications of Trump's alleged scheme, prosecutors charged him under a statute that was originally intended to target the Ku Klux Klan. Section 241 of the Title 18 of the U.S. Code makes it illegal to, quote, conspire to injure, oppress, threaten, or intimidate any person exercising a right that is protected by the Constitution. It's worth noting that there's a clear distinction between Trump's tactics and those of the Klan from a century ago. The hate group did everything in their power to keep newly freed black people from voting, but their methods were underpinned by terrorist violence like bombings and lynching. Trump is accused of using rhetoric the courts and the levers of government itself, to accomplish the same goal. Prosecutors believe that the law should apply all the same. Trump's indictment alleges that he took part in a, quote, conspiracy against the right to vote and to have one's vote counted. This accusation is a direct violation, pardon me, this accusation is in direct violation of Section 241. Furthermore, Trump is also being accused of pursuing Quote, unlawful means of discounting legitimate votes and subverting the election results. In 2020, President Biden received the black vote strongly across the entire country. However, Trump and his allies targeted ballots in those states, specifically the cities that had substantial black populations, in an attempt to retain power, though they claimed the lawsuits against those places weren't racially motivated. Trump's camp never presented any real evidence that showed these votes were invalid. Black people were denied the ability to vote for centuries, and Trump's plan to erase our political power wasn't just obvious, it was downright illegal. 
Violations of Section 241 are classified as felonies that are punishable by up to 10 years in prison or longer. Trump has boasted white supremacist ideology his entire career, so him being charged with a KKK law is fitting. The next two articles are also follow-ups on current events. This one comes from The Atlantic, written by Adam Serwer. Alabama is defying the Supreme Court on voting rights. This was posted July 28th. The state's refusal to comply has been met with the revealing silence on the right. Supreme Court rulings are meant to be the law of the land, but Alabama is taking its recent opinion on the Voting Rights Act as a mere recommendation. In an echo of mid-century Southern defiance of school desegregation, the Yellowhammer State's Republican-controlled legislature defied the conservative-dominated court's directive to redraw its congressional map with an additional black majority district. Openly defying a Supreme Court order is rare, almost as rare as conservative justices recognizing that the 15th Amendment outlaws racial discrimination in voting. Under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, states are sometimes required to draw districts with majority-minority populations. This requirement exists because, after Reconstruction, one of the methods southern states used to disenfranchise their black populations was racially gerrymandering congressional districts so that black voters could not, pardon me, could not affect the outcome of congressional elections. Earlier this year, Alabama asked the Supreme Court to further weaken the Voting Rights Act so as to preserve its racial gerrymander. More than a quarter of Alabama's population is black, but the state's Republican majority has racially gerrymandered that population into a single district out of seven because it fears those voters might elect Democrats. The partisan motive is no excuse for racial discrimination. 1870s Democrats also had a partisan interest in disenfranchising black voters who were then reliably Republican. After failing to get the Supreme Court to overturn Section 2, Alabama decided that following the law was optional. Alabama's open rejection of a Supreme Court ruling comes in the midst of a conservative campaign accusing liberals of, quote, delegitimizing the court by criticizing its lurch to the right and the coziness of the Republican-appointed justices with billionaire political donors who have interests before the court. This is another front, pardon me, front in the political campaign to delegitimize the Supreme Court with a goal of tarnishing its rulings and subjecting it to more political control, said the Wall Street Journal in May about Democratic hearings on potential ethics legislation. It went on, most of all, the court is no longer a backstop legislature for progressives to impose policies they can't get through Congress. Whatever else this court may be, it can now be fairly described as a backstop legislature for conservatives to impose policies they cannot get through Congress. Also, the court hasn't had a liberal majority since the Nixon era, so conservative complaints that the court was a, quote, backstop legislature for progressives are not an expression of opposition to political control over the court, 
but a lament that Republican appointees possessed only a slim one-vote majority for most of that time, which meant they didn't get their preferred outcomes as often as they wanted. And the way that the conservative movement seized the court was precisely by tarnishing its rulings for more than half a century. At one point, the right-wing legal martyr and originalist Robert Bork was so frustrated by the court being insufficiently conservative that he declared, As our institutional arrangements now stand, the court can never be made a legitimate element of a basically democratic polity. In the Wright's view, the judiciary was an imperial judiciary, an out-of-control branch of government. Indeed, although it now accuses the court's liberal critics of delegitimizing, the journal defends the current court by saying it is merely undoing the legal mistakes of recent decades. What the Roberts Court's defenders truly fear is the political strength of a critique of the court as overreaching and out of touch with the majority of the electorate, because, as conservatives well understand, That is a critique that has the power to influence elections and ultimately shape the court itself. They understand this because that is one reason the 6-3 to right-wing majority on the court came to be in the first place. This is why questioning the court's legal reasoning and sweeping power is a privilege that must be exclusively reserved for conservatives. The fear is clearly not that rogue actors will ignore the court's rulings, If the pervasive right-wing alarm over liberal criticism of the court as delegitimizing has been deafening, the conservative response to Alabama openly flouting the court's ruling has been muted. The Wall Street Journal's editorial page, for example, so protective of the court's legitimacy when it comes to substantive public criticism, did not view Alabama's refusal to obey the justices as an event worthy of comment. One would think that verbal criticism of powerful institutions, an essential part of life in any democracy, would be less an act of delegitimization than an open challenge to the rule of law. But Alabama is defying the rule of law in pursuit of conservative causes, more Republicans in Congress, voiding constitutional prohibitions on racial discrimination, and so it's fine. All of this renders the journal's hand-wringing rather ironic. It is clear that the right views the court as a political instrument for imposing conservative policy, and when the court fails to heed its obligation to do so, they can simply ignore it. This is consistent with the movement's Trumpist turn toward the belief that the legitimacy of any practice or institution, elections, fundamental freedoms, the state itself, is conferred not by the consent of the governed, but by the consent of the right. You have an inalienable access to the franchise as long as you vote Republican. You have free speech as long as you say conservative things. The free market is free only when it leads to conservative outcomes. The Supreme Court's rulings are the law of the land, except if those rulings are not what conservatives want. Alabama's maps will likely be challenged in court, But one reason the state's Republican leadership may feel comfortable with ignoring the justices in the first place is that Brett Kavanaugh and John Roberts were so clearly holding their noses in overturning a clear act of racial discrimination in voting that they might not be inclined to do it a second time. As Matt Ford reminds us, in striking down part of the Voting Rights Act in 2013, Roberts argued that, quote, things have changed dramatically in the South. 
and so those protections could be disregarded. That was naive at best then. Alabama is intent on illustrating why now. Maybe Alabama is bluffing, or maybe it simply doesn't believe that someone like Roberts, who has been dreaming of gutting the Voting Rights Act since he was in his 20s, really means it. Or perhaps Alabama is reminding the Republican-appointed justices that the court's legitimacy depends on its obedience to the conservative movement, whose view is that the only legitimate outcomes are conservative ones in laws, governments, presidents, or Supreme Court rulings. It is that position and the court's reliable adherence to it that has precipitated its loss of legitimacy. No liberal criticism could be as devastating to the court's credibility as the justices' own actions or the expectations of their defenders. I meant to um, introduce that as an opinion piece. I try to do that before each one that is. Moving now to, um, let me see what this This site is called 19thnews.org, harking to Florida education. Florida education officials say these women benefited from slavery. Here's the truth. As the state draws ire for its new social studies standards, historians are shedding light on the life experiences of women like Elizabeth Keckley, and Betsy Stockton. This was published originally July 26th, written by Nadra Niddle. About this site, 19th News, it says, Your trusted source for contextualizing race and education news. Girlhood and its Sorrows, the title of a chapter in Elizabeth Keckley's 1868 memoir, does not prepare the reader for the horrors the famous dressmaker endured while enslaved as a teenager in Hillsborough, North Carolina. To subdue Keckley's, quote, stubborn pride, her mistress ordered the village schoolmaster to flog her with a cow, cowhide pardon me, and rope, and he obliged, until welts formed and blood streamed down her back. This was the first of a series of floggings meted out because her mistress, who had a, quote, cold, jealous heart, resented her beauty, virtue, and grace. But the whippings weren't the only cause of the adolescent's suffering. Quoting from her memoir, A white man, I spare the world his name, had base designs upon me, Keckley recalls in her autobiography. I do not care to dwell upon this subject, for it is one that is fraught with pain, Suffice it to say that he persecuted me for four years, and I, I became a mother. Despite the fact that Keckley, who would go on to become Mary Todd Lincoln's dressmaker, suffered savage beatings and sexual assault, she appears on a list shared Thursday by the Florida Department of Education's African American History Standards Work Group, as an example of one of the slaves who took advantage of whatever circumstances they were in to benefit themselves. The Florida Department of Education is drawing ire from the public, historians, and high-ranking elected officials for its 2023 social studies standards that state, quote, slaves developed skills which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. 
In defense of the standards, the working group released a list of 16 individuals they say personally benefited from the skills they acquired while enslaved. Four women appear on the heavily scrutinized list that has already raised questions about inaccuracies. This attempt to make slavery seem like kind of an apprenticeship really just seems to be an absurd way to approach it, says Gregory Nobles, a professor emeritus of history at the Georgia Institute of Technology. He went on, anybody who was enslaved. They learned very quickly the rules of the game and how those rules applied to them as individuals. To live in that state of unfreedom, even if it might not have been brutalizing on a day-to-day basis, sends a message to somebody about their identity, frankly, their status as human beings. Although historians don't dispute that enslaved people could be highly skilled, they told the 19th, this news source, that Florida's social studies standards don't provide a complete picture of enslavement and appear to sanitize it. They also expressed concern that the standards suggest enslavement should be credited for teaching skills to captive black Americans, ignoring that enslaved people excelled at trades due to their own initiative and often in spite of their captors' indifference or efforts to oppress them. Moreover, many of the former enslaved people the work group listed did not excel at a trade until after their release from bondage. Nobles is the author of 2022's The Education of Betsy Stockton, about the educator formerly enslaved by the Reverend Ashbel Green, then president of what is now Princeton University. Along with Keckley, Stockton is one of the women on the group's list. Another woman listed Betsy, pardon me, Betty Washington Lewis, was the sister of the nation's first president, George Washington. She was white and never enslaved, It's unclear if Marietta Carter, identified as a tailor on the list, ever existed. That leaves Keckley and Stockton as the only women named who were enslaved for certain. The Florida Department of Education did not respond to the 19th's request for comment about alleged errors on their list. The social studies curriculum has drawn criticism from the public and politicians on both sides of the partisan aisle. During a visit Friday to Jacksonville, Florida, Vice President Kamala Harris blasted the new social studies standards as gaslighting and propaganda. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis that same day appeared to distance himself from the standards, emphasizing that he didn't put the curriculum together. He said, I didn't do it and I wasn't involved in it. As his 2024 presidential campaign falters financially, leading to layoffs of more than a third of his campaign payroll. He went on, they're probably going to show some of the folks that eventually parlayed, you know, being a blacksmith into doing things later in life, he said of the standards. Two of his Republican rivals in the presidential race, former Representative Will Hurd and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, criticized the curriculum, which has been linked to DeSantis's 2022 Stop Woke Act. That legislation restricts what schools can teach about race, privilege, and oppression. Unfortunately, it has to be said, slavery wasn't a jobs program that taught beneficial skills, said Hurd, who is biracial, via Twitter. He went on, it was literally dehumanizing and subjugated people as property because they lacked any rights or freedoms. Keckley, for one, did not learn how to be a dressmaker from her captors, but from her enslaved mother. 
Not only were many enslaved people skilled, a number of West and Central Africans were already skilled when they were forcibly shipped to the Americas. Expertise, enslaved African. Pardon me. Expertise enslaved Africans brought with them to the United States included cultivation of indigo and cotton, knowledge of dyeing, weaving, and sewing, as handwoven garments, hairstyles, and head wrappings, and use of color. That's according to Dress of the African American Woman in Slavery and Freedom, 1500 to 1935. These cultural skills passed down for generations undermine the idea that enslavement deserves credit for Keckley's dressmaking prowess. Kate Masser, a professor of history at Northwestern University, put Keckley's life into perspective. Masser wrote the introduction for the 2018 reissue of the 1942 book titled They Knew Lincoln, about the black Americans in President Abraham Lincoln's life, which included Keckley. After North Carolina, the dressmaker moved to St. Louis, St. Louis, while still enslaved. There she made gowns for many society women. While she was sewing in St. Louis, she was supporting an entire family of her enslavers, said Masur. All of her income went to supporting them as well as herself and her mother and her son. And she wasn't able to save the money that she made from being such a skilled seamstress because all of that went to them and then even those people who enslaved her for so long, refused to allow her to become free, and they required her to buy her own freedom, rather than just granting her freedom, which was totally within their power. Rather than benefit from her skills as a dressmaker, Keckley was exploited by her enslavers. She could not afford to buy her freedom for the $1,200 fee, which is equivalent to more than $42,000 today. Her enslaver set for her, in 1855. In the end, wealthy benefactors raised the money to free her and her son. Keckley later moved to Washington, D.C., where she advocated for Civil War refugees, joining the, oh, pardon me, joined the influential 15th Street Presbyterian Church and designed dresses for some of the most influential women in the nation's capital. When her memoir was released, however, the press accused her of betraying Mary Todd Lincoln, whose letters were printed in the book. Keckley denied any knowledge that the publisher intended to print the letters, but the First Lady never spoke to her again, and Keckley's influential customers turned their backs on her. Keckley died destitute in 1907 at age 89. It's a good example of how, if you were a black person living in that time period, having certain kinds of exceptional skills did not guarantee you a good life, said Masur. Here was this person who had made dresses for the most prominent political women in Washington, D.C., who ended her life in poverty, living in what's called the home for destitute women and children, without very much of a livelihood. That the Florida Social Studies standards don't discuss how enslavement was maintained concerns Masur. They don't mention physical or sexual violence, family separations, or much at all about how enslavers imposed bondage on people who desired their freedom. She said, if that had been the case, then acknowledging that some people were able to develop skills within that institution would make more sense, but without the information about how slavery was maintained, then we just see, oh, these skills for personal benefit, and it feels completely out of context, she said. Enslaved in North 
pardon me, enslaved in the North, Stockton, a teacher and a missionary did not experience the brutalities that Keckley did, at least as far as the historical record shows. Born in 1798, her life was not without trauma, the first of which occurred when she was removed from her mother as a small child and given to her enslaver's daughter and her husband, Ashbel Green, possibly as a gift or part of a legal agreement. Her separation from her mother likely caused immeasurable trauma, said Nobles, author of the book about Stockton's life. Stockton may also have been subjected to physical abuse, as Green wrote that he had to, quote, correct her when she was about six years old. But it's unclear what form this correction took. Green was not opposed to physical punishments, as he described whipping another young black person in his household, said Nobles. Stockton lived in Green's household as an enslaved person and likely as an indentured servant until her teenage years. In 1813, she was sold or sent away to another Presbyterian pastor, and three years of her life and labor were sold, a decision over which she has absolutely no control, said Nobles. It's not clear exactly when she was emancipated, with a number of sources agreeing that it was around the year 1817. After her manumission, said Nobles, she improved her situation enormously because of her own work, her own initiative, not because Ashbel Green or the institution of slavery helped her. She learned to read on her own, and she took advantage of the many, many books in Green's library. As a young woman in 1822, Stockton left the United States to become a missionary to the Sandwich Islands, now called Hawaii. A couple of years later, she returned to the U.S. to run the first infant school for black children in Philadelphia and spent three decades, says Noble, as the only teacher in the lone black public school in Princeton, New Jersey. She died in 1865. Noble said, She made the most of her situation. She became not just a highly educated person, but an intellectual person. People talked about how remarkably sophisticated her reading was, she became a very, very effective teacher in very difficult circumstances, both in Hawaii and in Philadelphia, and certainly in Princeton, at a time when educating children of color was not just dismissed, it quite often was very actively discouraged and threatened. For instance, white supremacists targeted black schools and black churches with violence, and Stockton had founded both schools and what is now the Witherspoon Street Presbyterian Church in Princeton. That she did so was an act of resistance, said Nobles. To see her story used to suggest that she benefited from enslavement has astounded this historian. He said it's not an honest way of describing her life or that of any enslaved person calling the social studies standards an historical smokescreen. I don't think that it's at all surprising that people who were enslaved developed skills, he said. They were human beings. They had intellect. They had imagination. They were not just automatons out in the field. And I think we've found many instances of people like Stockton who go on to do remarkable things. But again, it's not as though being enslaved is somehow a springboard for success. It was quite the opposite. Nobles has also acknowledged how difficult it is to know the truth about enslaved people's lives, especially if they did not tell their own stories. Most of the people who wrote contemporaneous accounts of Stockton's life were white men, he said, including her enslaver Green. 
I think we've learned as historians to be skeptical about what's being said, especially if it's been said by white people about black people, said Nobles. There certainly can be an attempt to kind of soften or sanitize the details of the relationship, and so I think that's a useful lesson for everybody in reading about these alleged success stories of enslaved people. Next, I have a few articles related to food. This first one comes from Black Enterprise. It was posted August 4th, written by Stacy Jackson. Minnesota's black woman-owned farmer's market wants to help her community with better food options. Only one black woman-owned farmer's market in Minnesota makes better nutrition available to everyone. Chaz Sandifer's Lakeview Terrace Farmer's Market in Robbinsdale is in its second year of providing the community with access to healthy food, wellness, and community building. According to WCCO, Sandifer's Market features farmers from across the region who offer customers locally grown in-season produce. Vendors at the market sell fresh meat and artisan baked goods, jams, juices, and crafts. We have a lack of food access. We have lots of food disparities and health disparities and the root cause. People don't have the access or the knowledge to healthy have, to have healthy food, said Sandifer in an interview on WCCO Radio. Shoppers at the market can access meals, coffee, and snacks prepared on site from various food trucks and booths. Sandifer shared that food is one of many enjoyments patrons will experience at the Minnesota market. We have free fitness classes every Saturday at 9.30 a.m., she shared, which will be hosted on-site in partnership with Fitness Sisters. According to the website, we've got music, art classes, and the city of, pardon me, with the city of Robbinsdale, cooking demonstrations and competitions, and back-to-school events later in the season. We want the whole community to come out, Sandifer told WCCO. Visitors can watch knife-offs, knife-offs featuring local chefs from across the region and join in on the annual back-to-school bash and backpack giveaway. Although the market is black-owned, Sandifer declared, or pardon me, Sandifer clarified, that it doesn't mean it's just for black people. It is an experience where everyone is welcome to gather, she added. We are going to have so much fun this summer. Sandifer sponsors and manages the Lakeview Terrace Farmer's Market through her small business, the new MPLS, the new Minneapolis, in partnership with the city of Robbinsdale. The Lakeview Terrace Farmer's Market will run from 9 to 1 every Saturday through September 23rd. Residents and visitors of Minnesota can locate the market at the northeast corner of Botany Boulevard and Lakeland Avenue in Robbinsdale, Minnesota, across from Hy-Vee. Next one comes from Travel Noir. Written by Jasmine Osby, posted July 17th. A daughter spends $40,000 to rebuild one of Texas's oldest black-owned restaurants. A Texas woman spent $40,000 to revitalize her family's business, White's Barbecue, with a rich history in the state. White's Barbecue reopened on July 1st in Longview, Texas, after being closed since 1985. Back in the day, White's served as one of the oldest family and black-owned restaurants in Texas. According to CBS, 
Music icon Ray Charles dined at the establishment when America was still segregated. Audrey White, the daughter of the original owner, spent her own money to bring the historic restaurant back to life. When the city gave her the option on demolishing the abandoned building or remodeling it, White sprung into action. She knew it was important to resurrect the restaurant from decay so its legacy could live on. They had a lot of community then, White told CBS. African Americans had nowhere else to eat. They had nowhere else to come in. Although White said she spent most of her savings on remodeling expenses, she knows the cost will be worth it. While Texas ranks as the third best state for black entrepreneurs to be successful, according to Merchant Maverick, it previously reigned as one of the most racist, segregated states in the country. According to the book, African Americans in South Texas History, San Antonio became the first southern city to integrate lunch counters in 1960. Despite the attempt, voluntary segregation continued, with essayist Robert A. Goldberg saying, quote, civil rights has been granted, not won. Having survived through such racially tumultuous times, it was important White's barbecue fire up its grills once more. The grand opening was just so exhilarating because of the support that the community has given me, said White. When people come in, they will see things in the past. They will see themselves when they were younger. So far, the restaurant has been doing well. A blend of nostalgia pardon me, and new age flavor, White's Barbecue is recreating fresh memories for East Texans. The menu is also a blast from the past with ribs, beef and sausage, chicken leg quarters, brisket, and more. One young lady held a birthday party here, a private deal, and she was sitting here with all of her friends, and it was so happy. Everyone was so happy, said White. It was just like back in the day. White's Barbecue is opened every Saturday in Longview, Texas, between 11.30 and 5 p.m. And it turns out I have two articles on food. The next two will be on music topics. Andre Watts took both Liszt and Schubert to his heart. And I meant to say Liszt and Schubert. This is a memoriam. Comes from The Economist. Written Oh, do they not give me an author? Hmm. No author listed. One of America's first black stars of classical piano died on July 12th, age 77. The concert piece, Franz Liszt's E-flat concerto, opened with a bracing call and response, a seven-note motif from the strings answered by a rousing clarion call from the horns and woodwinds. Then the same again, The strings pitched a bit lower and the winds higher, a call to action. The pianist took it up. The orchestra responded, and a chase began. For the next 20 minutes, the pianist played sweeping flights that sounded like improvisations, using almost the entire keyboard. The orchestra doing the chasing on January 12, 1963, was the New York Philharmonic under Leonard Bernstein, then perhaps the most celebrated conductor in the world. The pianist was Andre Watts, blade-thin and straight-backed. He played with burning-eyed fluency, 
every inch the romantic hero. He was sixteen. The call had come to his parents' house in Philadelphia only two days before. The pianist who was billed to play, Glenn Gold, was ill. Could Andre replace him? Of course he could. He surmised later that the manager and conductor had said to each other, Remember that kid, the one who had already won an audition to play for Bernstein's nationally televised young people's concerts? Even though his practice had been on a rickety old piano with 26 strings missing. The effect of that January concert was electric. He went from having no concerts booked to 75 in a year. At 17, he won his first Grammy for Most Promising New Classical Recording Artist. Young as he was, he was now firmly launched on a career largely devoted to the romantic repertoire. He emerged onto the world stage as one of the very few African-American classical music headliners. Inevitably, his color was noted. At that famous concert, Bernstein told the audience he looked rather like a young Persian prince and commented on his mixed-up name. The allusion was to his mixed-race parentage. His father was an African-American soldier stationed in West Germany after the Second World War, his mother a Hungarian refugee. In 1971, the New York Times described him as, quote, capable of appearing as variously as an austere mulatto, a wistful passant surviving some Mediterranean terrace, oh, pardon me, that's surveying some Mediterranean terrace, or a bookish adolescent confronting his bar mitzvah. People kept asking whether he played jazz. All of this he took in his stride. Color was just a physical description that could soon be dismissed. The simple fact was that he was half black and half white, a position he liked. It meant he could take pot shots at both sides. His formative influences, in any case, were European. After his parents divorced when he was 13, his mother brought him up. His earliest memory was of her playing Strauss waltzes on the piano in their apartment in Ulm, in Baden-Württemberg. In Philadelphia, his home from the age of eight, she was the one who insisted that he should learn to play music, just as he should learn to read and write. Violin was his first instrument, but whenever he played, the family dog would sit beside him, baying at the moon. So he switched to piano, and for a year did just what he liked on it. He would hold down the pedal for pages, feeling the immense sounds mushrooming all around him. Love of that sound lasted. When he started proper lessons, his mother encouraged him to practice, which he disliked, and she traveled to concerts with him until he was 21. He, in turn, was solicitous of her, dining out with her when he was 25. He graciously accepted a bottle of champagne from the restaurant, explaining that she only drank Tatinger. Pardon me, I don't know how to pronounce this brand. Tatinger. He stayed devoted all his life to the drive and showmanship of Liszt, reveling in the way the great composer wore his virtuosity with a bit of a smile, as if saying, Isn't it interesting to see me on this high wire? All the same, he disapproved of the way some pianists played him, slamming their feet down, clipping the corners. The Hungarian rhapsodies had to be approached as respectfully as Mozart concerto, stripped of cliché and sloppiness. It was amazing what you could hear in them. In these explorations, he needed to feel an audience was with him. 
Though he made so many recordings, playing music without live listeners had a chilly sort of sterility. He wanted to transmit his personal response to the music readily and freely, without hiding anything of himself. The composer he felt closest to was Franz Schubert, because of his clarity and openness. Guileless was the word that struck him as all feelings exposed in a sacred space. Before music, he was always humble. He wanted to compose his own, but put no notes on paper. Perhaps he thought he did not really have anything to say. He found interviews awkward because he was so intent on his search for the precise word, and he disliked vaunting himself. Even as a child, when at nine he performed with the Philadelphia Orchestra, he did not suppose he was better than any of the other children who played. And as a perfectionist, he feared he might get too frustrated with composition. In a musical career, there was always another level to strive for, but as soon as you reached that, there was yet another. Instead, he preferred to settle into learning from the masters, especially from Leon Fleischer, his chief teacher. The hardest part of playing music, he thought, was to preserve a balance between being the star who strode on stage, proclaiming to the audience that he would give them something worthwhile, and the man who felt he was nothing but an idiot who didn't know what he was doing. Fleischer taught him how to manage that. He also learned how to defy the tendonitis that assailed him as he got older. When nerve damage limited the use of his left hand, he simply transcribed Ravel's Concerto for the Left Hand to the right one. It's probably Ravel. Forgive me again. That entailed more than just sliding a bit to the left on the piano bench. It involved re-engineering a hugely challenging piece. But his version worked, and he was surprised by its power, which seemed to come from learning it so late in life. When he came to play it, with the Detroit and the Atlanta orchestras, it was an act of daring, with no less so, oh, pardon me, and no less so than playing Liszt on national television with the world's most famous conductor when he was just a boy. And next, a tribute to Rosetta Tharp, Sister Rosetta Tharp, and this was published June 29th, by, written by Dinny Eilert, for the guitarist world, or guitar world. Keith Richards and Eric Clapton worshipped her solos, and Elvis idolized her sound. How Sister Rosetta Tharp became an electric guitar trailblazer. The story of the Gibson-toting guitarist who lit the fire on a six-string revolution that paved the way for rock and roll. Rosetta Newbin was born on the 20th of March, 1915, in Cotton Plant, Arkansas, a small town sandwiched between the Midwestern and Southern states. Both parents were cotton workers, although Rosetta didn't know much of her father except that he sang in his spare time. Her mother Katie was deeply ensconced in the local church as both deaconess, vocalist, and mandolinist. Clearly a child prodigy by the age of six, Rosetta was performing with her mother, singing and playing guitar under the name Little Rosetta Newbin, as part of a traveling evangelical group. Even at this early stage, Rosetta was spoken of as a formidable talent on the guitar. Throughout the 1920s, she further honed her skills after relocating with her mother to Chicago, performing in gospel music ensembles locally alongside the occasional nationwide tour. It was around this time that Rosetta started to hear the first recordings of such blues queens as Ma Rainey and the trio of Smiths, Bessie, Trixie, and Mamie. 
This was the era when blues was dominated by female artists shortly before the first Delta or country blues recordings were made. Rosetta was right in the thick of it, absorbing the music of her church roots and mixing in a dose of the blues, which was a controversial pursuit at the time. In 1934, aged just 19, Rosetta married for the first time. His name was Thomas Thorpe, a preacher who was part of the touring troupe that Rosetta and Katie were involved with. The marriage lasted just four years, but in that time, Rosetta Newman became Sister Rosetta Tharp, a slight deviation from her husband's name. Big band leader Lucky Millender led an orchestra from the mid-twenties to the mid-fifties that served as a breeding ground for many future stars of jazz and blues. Bull Moose Jackson, Winoni Harris, and Ruth Brown were among those who later found fame as R&B took hold in the 1940s. Tharp joined Millinder's orchestra for her first recordings as the in, pardon me, at the end of October 1938, waxing four sides for Decca. That's all, and My Man and I feature just Tharp's voice and Delta-infused national guitar. Sounding for all the world like a female Robert Johnson, Rosetta's sparkling voice soared over her accompaniment, demonstrating her mastery of the country blues style perfectly. The Lonesome Road, an evergreen jazz standard with a gospel-leaning lyric, later recorded by the likes of Frank Sinatra and Nat King Cole, sees Rosetta performing solely as a vocalist, her church-influenced yet blues-drenched voice perfect for the material. It's with Rock Me, however, that we hear Tharp's electric guitar for the first time, and significantly, this is the very record that had such a profound influence on future rock and rollers such as Elvis, Little Richard, and Jerry Lee Lewis. It's a typical 16-bar blues sequence for the time, where Rosetta's now patent bluesy gospel vocal blends effortlessly with Millinder's standard swing-era big band arrangement. But it's the opening 16-bar guitar solo that caused such a stir and is nothing short of revolutionary. Sister Rosetta truly was a force and highly influential in the electric guitar's early days, a fact so often overlooked. It's a beautifully melodic solo full of subtle slides and string bends, pardon me, string bends, and sounds as though it's taken as much from country music as from blues. The song was a huge hit and made Rosetta a star, despite the controversy surrounding the recording, which effectively is a gospel song performed in a secular style. It was a full 16 years before Ray Charles got the credit for mixing Sacred with Secular for his seminal I Got a Woman record in 1955, but it was Rosetta who was the true pioneer. And that brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. Programming from AINC is made possible by funding from the AEC Trust. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.